Welcome to Monday evening. This is the final um, class we're going to do on the Vimalakirti Nidesha, even though we're by the end of this evening we're the, we'll be about halfway through the text. So this evening we're going to do chapter 7 and it's 13 chapters in all. Um, so I'm not going to do a recap because you don't need a recap for chapter 7. It, it kind of um, it makes sense on its own. It's like an episode. Um, self-contained episode um, and it's quite a big chapter actually quite a lot not a lot happens but a couple of very important things happen um, and ideally we do it over two weeks um, but I'm going away next week and I'll be away for three weeks so this has to really be the last class in the session so we're gonna do it all in two weeks uh, in in one session um, just let's just do a check. How many people are leaving early this evening? Okay. Okay. So I think this evening, let's just really go for it, and then have a tea break towards the end of the class, and people can just leave at that point. So rather than have a tea break and then come back, so we do the whole thing. So what we do with the we'll do the first bit. We'll do the first part of the reading and then we'll stop and I'll talk about it and you can ask questions and so on. And then um, Arya Mati will come up front here and uh, there will be a dialogue between Arya Mati and um, whatever you want to Hridayamani. Although <laughs> you won't be Hridayamani, you'll be Shariputra. Shariputra. And uh, Arya Mati will be the goddess. Brill. Be kind, be but, kind she will not treat you gently. She will <laughs> ring you, take you right through the... Uh, <laughs> to the cleaners. Yeah, yeah, she'll put you in the washing machine and put it on the 12,000 spin. Uh, so that's later, but first of all we'll just do the first part, which is a dialogue between... All it is is a dialogue between Manjushri and uh, Vimalakirti. And in my opinion, uh, it's one of the most important dialogues of all. It really is really quite wonderful. Um, I thought I might just uh, tell you a couple of things because um, Vimalakirti's replies to Manjushri, uh, they do make sense without understanding some of what he said, but um, makes even more sense if you know all of what he said. So he, let me just tell you, just in case you might remember this, but a stream winner, what he calls a stream winner, is someone who has gone beyond self-view. So at some point, Vimalakirti talks about the egoistic views of a stream winner. Yeah. So now you know what that means. Yeah. A stream winner cannot have egoistic views because he or she doesn't have self-view. Similarly, oh, uh, he then mentions a once-returner, and a once-returner is someone who is very far advanced on the path. They only need one more life once to return, and they'll definitely gain enlightenment in their next life. Yeah, that's a, one, uh, a once-returner. So it says like a th the third rebirth of a once-returner. So these are nonsense things, yeah? Um, and then he says, um, uh, 
like the rebirth of a non-returner. So a non-returner is someone who will definitely get, gain uh, enlightenment. They're not going to be reborn. Um, then he says, like the existence of greed, hatred and delusion in an arahant. Now an arahant is someone who's fully enlightened, so they have no greed, hatred or delusion. Likewise, like thoughts of avarice, immorality, animosity and hostility in a bodhisattva in possession of patience. So what this refers to is the eighth bhumi or the eighth stage of a bodhisattva, which is very, very far advanced. And as you can probably guess, they don't have avarice, immorality, animosity or hostility in them. Likewise, like the pervasion of passions in a Tathagata. Tathagata is another word for Buddha. Um, like the inhalation and exhalation of an ascetic absorbed in the meditation of cessation. This is very technical and I won't even tell you what that means. Just We'll just pass over that a little bit. Um, and so on and so on. Like, uh, like the unproduced passions of an emanated incarnation of a Tathagata, similarly, similar kind of idea, like the passions of one who is free of conceptualizations. Yeah. So if you are beyond conceptualization, you are also beyond passion. You don't have passions. These are all contradictions. These are all contradictions, yeah. Contradictions of terms. Yeah. Terms. Yeah. Finally, like the reincarnation of one who has attained ultimate liberation. So someone who attained ultimate liberation is not reincarnated. So these are technical things. It doesn't really matter if you don't quite get it. But the main point is that what Vimnakirti is doing is, as you say, it's a whole bunch of contradiction in terms. Most of them you all understand, but some of them are these technical ones. Are some of them quite humorous? I mean, they're all... Some of them, some of them are humorous, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be Manjushri and Hridayaman is going to be Vimalakirti. So let's just close our eyes and meditate for a short while just to prepare ourselves for the reading. Thereupon, Manjushri, the crown prince, addressed the Lich of Evimlikirti. <clears throat> Good sir, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? Manjushri, 
a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water, or as magicians regard men created by magic. He or she should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam, like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water, like the core of a banana tree, like a flash of lightning, like the fifth great element, like the seventh sense medium, like the appearance of form in the formless realm, like a sprout from a rotten seed, like a tortoise hair coat, like the fun of games for one who wishes to die, like the egoistic views of a stream winner, like a third rebirth of a once-returner, like the rebirth of a non-returner, like the existence of greed, hatred and delusion in an arahant, like thoughts of avarice, immorality, animosity and hostility in a bodhisattva in possession of patience, like the, like the pervasion of passions in a Tathagata, like the perception of colour in one blind from birth, like the inhalation and exhalation of an aesthetic absorbed in the meditation of cessation, like the track of a bird in the sky, like the erection of a eunuch, like the pregnancy of a barren woman, like the unproduced passions of an eminent, emanated incarnation of the Tathagata, like dream visions seen after waking, like the passions of one who is free of conceptualizations, like burning, like fire burning without fuel, like the reincarnation of one who has attained ultimate liberation. Precisely thus, Manjushri, does a bodhisattva who realizes the ultimate selflessness consider all beings. Noble Sir, if a bodhisattva considers all beings in such a way, how does she generate the great love toward them? 
Manjushri, when a bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, she thinks, just as I have realized the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. Thereby, she generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. The love that is peaceful because free of grasping. The love that is not feverish because free of passions. The love that is impartial throughout the past, present and future. The love that is without conflict because free of the violence of the passions. The love that is non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal. The love that is imperturbable because totally ultimate. Thereby she generates the love that is firm, its high resolve, unbreakable, like a diamond. The love that is pure, purified in its intrinsic nature. The love that is even, because its intentions are the same. The Arahant's love that has eliminated its enemy. The Bodhisattva's love that continuously develops living beings. The Tathagata's love that understands reality. The Buddha's love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep. The love that is spontaneous because it is fully enlightened spontaneously. The love that is enlightenment because it is of only one flavor. The love that has no uncalled for affirmation because it is free of attachment and aversion. The love that is great compassion because it infuses the Mahayana with radiance. The love that is never exhausted because it acknowledges emptiness and selflessness. The love that is giving because it bestows the gift of Dharma free of the tight fist of a bad teacher. The love that is morality because it improves immoral living beings. The love that is 
patience because it protects both self and others. The love that is effort because it takes responsibility for all living beings. The love that is contemplation because it is unaffected by taste. The love that is wisdom because it causes attainment at the proper time. The love that is skillful means because it shows the way everywhere. The love that is without falseness because of the purity of its good intentions. The love that is without deviation because it acts from decisive motivation. The love that is high resolve because it is without passions. The love that is without illusion because it is without artifice. The love that is happiness because it introduces living beings to the happiness of the Buddha. Such Manjushri is the great love of a bodhisattva. What is the great compassion of a bodhisattva? It is the giving of all accumulated roots of virtue to all living beings. What is the great joy of the bodhisattva? It is to be joyful without regret in giving. What is the great equanimity of the Bodhisattva? It is what benefits both self and others. To what should one resort when terrified by fear of rebirth? Manjushri, a Bodhisattva who is terrified of fear of rebirth should resort to magnanimity of the Buddha. Where should he who wishes to resort to the magnanimity of the Buddha take his stand? He should stand in equanimity toward all living beings. Where should he who wishes to stand in equanimity toward all living beings take his stand? He should live for the liberation of all living beings. What should he who wishes to liberate all living beings do? He should liberate them from their passions. How should he who wishes to eliminate passions apply himself? He should apply himself appropriately. How should he apply himself to apply himself appropriately? He should apply himself to non-arising 
a non-extinction. What does not arise and what is not extinguished. Unskillful mental states do not arise and skillful mental states are not extinguished. What is the root of skillful and unskillful mental states? Self-view is the root of skillful and unskillful mental states. What is the root of self-view? Craving is the root of self-view. What is the root of craving? Unreal construction is the root of craving. What is the root of unreal construction? Distorted perception is its root. What is the root of distorted perception? Baselessness. What is the root of baselessness? Manjushri, when something is baseless, how can it have any root? Therefore, all things stand on the root which is baseless. Okay, how did you get on with that reading? Did you manage to follow it? So uh, falls into three sections really, that first part. You've got first of all Manjushri asking Vimala um, Kirti how a bodhisattva should regard all living beings. That's the question. And uh, the answer is basically it's a series of similes, isn't it? Some of them are very beautiful, taken from nature. Um, You've got some very uh, traditional ones here that the Buddha used. Um, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water. Yeah. So it's obvious what that means, I suppose, isn't it? It's, you can see the moon reflected in water, but the moon isn't really there. And if you were to try to grasp it, it would just would there be nothing to grasp? That's the basic message. All the other similes follow that message. But as I say, there's some lovely early similes that even the Buddha used here. He should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, similar. Like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo. That's one of my favourites. The sound of an echo. <coughs> so that's very interesting, isn't it? That Vimalakirti is saying that that's how a bodhisattva should regard living beings. Another way of putting that is that's how living beings really are. That's why a bodhisattva should regard them as such, because that's the way we really are. We're like the sound of an echo, yeah, in some way. Uh, like a mass of clouds in the sky. Like the previous moment of a ball of foam. That's rather lovely too, isn't it? The previous moment of a ball of foam. Like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. Like the core of a banana tree. 
apparently a banana tree doesn't have a core. And this brings us to a whole load of impossibilities and many of them are meant to be humorous. Uh, so the first one is like the core of a banana tree. Oh no, no, we've, then we've got like a flash of lightning. This is the one that the Buddha used. Uh, we should regard other living beings like a flash of lightning. And then, like the fifth great element. Are there only four? It's funny that, isn't it? Well, that's funny. That is funny. Um, yeah, there are only four. Yeah, earth, water, fire and air. Great ones, yeah. Yeah. So this is like the fifth great element. Like the seventh sense medium, there are only six senses and so on and so on. Um, like the appearance of form in a formless world, etc, etc. Um, many, many, many like that. Like the perception of colour in one blind from birth. Like the erection of a eunuch. Like the pregnancy of a barren woman. And it goes on. Here's another beautiful one. Like dream visions seen after waking. Isn't that lovely? You know when you've had a dream, you wake up and you can't quite grasp it. You know, you ah, oh, what's a dream? You can't, can't quite get it. So this is how a bodhisattva should regard living beings. So what does this mean? Um, this is, of course, the, you could say, one of the central insights of Buddhism, that there are no beings. That's basically what Vimalakirti is saying, there are no beings. So what does it mean that there are no beings? Because there are beings, aren't there? We do exist. We definitely do exist. Yeah. But not in the way that we think we exist. So uh, what the Buddha means by there are no beings is there is no core. There's no central selfhood that emanates in a body and a personality. There is, there is nothing but the body and the personality. There's no Atman underlying it all or inside it all. That's what it really means. Um, so you could say uh, it's the teaching of Shunyata uh, or no selfhood. Um, and you could say it's the teaching of radical impermanence because non-selfhood really means from the temporal point of view anyway, from the point of view of time, radical impermanence. When I'm trying to teach this to schools, I always use the example of, because um, I'm always sitting here, I always use the example of this post, which seems so real, doesn't it? So solid and lasting. And it is, because it's been here over 100 years now, I think, and probably be here for a long, long time, um, all being well. So, but, um, it doesn't have any essential being. Um, it's probably moving about even now. We can't see it moving, but it's, it's um, very, very slowly breaking down, isn't it? You know, if you leave a building and you don't look after it, you know, one of those old farmhouses out in Wales that people don't want anymore. You go past one of those after a few years, and it's looking decidedly ragged and a bit broken down. Uh, but if you go past one that's been there for a hundred years, it's really, you know, it's walls have fallen down and there's just bits and pieces sticking up. If you go past one that's been there for 200 years, it's just, there's hardly anything left of it. So if you had a camera, if you'd have had a camera 200 years ago and just put it on film for 200 years, if that were possible, and then you played it back extremely fast, 
over say a five minute period, you'd see it, wouldn't you? You'd see it breaking down and things happening. And that's what you would see. You'd see weather going past really quickly. You get that sometimes on these nature programs, neither, don't you? Weather going past really quickly, clouds like this. This is, this is really what life is like. So even this iron post, which seems so solid, isn't really. Um, so that's breaking down. So we're like that too, we're radically impermanent. So what Vimalakirti is saying is that what we should try to do is understand ourselves and others in that kind of way. Try and see people like that. What would it mean to see people in that kind of way? Like an echo, the sound of an echo, like um, dream vision after waking. Well, for a start, it means you can't really grasp them. Yeah, they're ungraspable. We're, we're essentially ungraspable. Or another way of putting that is essentially unknowable, kind of unique. And uh, we think we know people and we kind of pin them down in our mind and we even pigeonhole people, don't we? Uh, that person's a nice person, that person's rather awkward. We pigeonhole people like that, um, but they're unpigeonholable. You, you can't really put them in any particular category. They're unknowable, unique, um, and they don't last very long. Um, some of you have seen pictures of me when I was a young man teaching. Have you ever gone onto YouTube or something and seen film of me teaching when I was younger or pictures of me? Sometimes people unearth things that they've seen when I was a young man teaching when my hair was blonde and not grey and um, I looked young. Um, and there doesn't seem to have been any particular point between then, let's say 20 years ago when I was teaching and now, that marked a change. There was no sort of point on that day. I remember before that day and then after that, and before that day I was like this and after that day I was like that. I don't remember any of that. It was all, this all happened incrementally, but it's definitely happened. So, um, Sangharachita once talked about habit and how we are, self-view is basically um, a habit, the habit of being the person we think we are, going on and on and on in a very habitual way. And we're nothing but a bundle of habits, is what he said once. But not only that, other people are like that too. But we tend to fix them in our mind as well. This is one of the things, this is why Sangha is so important, because um, in Sangha at least, at least we pay lip service to change, don't we? We're trying to change. The whole point of being a Buddhist is to change. So we're trying to change. So when somebody does change, we might find it a bit uncomfortable, but at the same time, if we're aware enough, we'd be really pleased for that person. Um, but we do tend to pigeonhole people and pin them down in a role and that makes it harder for them to change. So to the extent that we see each other as fixed beings, that tends to confirm them in their fixity and it makes it harder for them to change. So it's really, really important that Bodhisattva really sees people as very ephemeral, changing, fluid. Yeah. That's what the first bit means. And then the second question is, uh, well, if that's the case, how 
can a bodhisattva have the great love towards them? So can you see why he's asked that question? If beings aren't really beings, if there are no beings there, how can you love them? That's one of the big questions that you get asked a lot if you do school visits and so on. If, you, if, if, if there are no beings, how can there be love? So Vimalakirti's um, reply is remarkable, isn't it? I think really remarkable. He talks about the uh, Maha Maitri. So Maitri is the Sanskrit version of Metta. So he's talking about Metta basically. Maha is great. And it means um, great, great Metta isn't just big, large Metta. It's also the Metta that understands reality. So it, Maha Maitri is the Metta that realizes there aren't really any beings. Yeah. So his answer is a great long paean to love, isn't it? And um, the translator Thurman says he didn't want to translate Maitri as goodwill, as is usually translated. He wanted to translate it as love because love is such a powerful word. And of course he, he defines, as he goes through all these similes, he defines what he means by love. So you couldn't possibly think that he's talking about romantic love or anything like that becomes obvious after a few similes that he's talking about rather than an extraordinary kind of love. So it's the love of all beings, even though you realise that beings don't really ultimately exist. Yep. And then comes this, uh, this uh, dialogue, which is question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Were you able to follow that? It's quite a difficult one, that. And that, that, that's one of my favourite parts of the whole text, where you just go, you're chunking down, down, down and down, aren't you? First of all, he asks him about the... Uh, so he's asking about love. And then he asks him... Then he asks him about... Um, compassion, then joy, and then equanimity. So there are the four Brahmaviharas. Do you know the four Brahmaviharas? Metabhavna, Karanabhavna, which is compassion, Karana is compassion. Um, Mudisabhavna, Mudisar is sympathetic joy, the joy you feel in other people's uh, good fortune. I just came across another lovely um, uh, possible translation of um, mudita, we usually call it sympathetic joy, sometimes gladness, celebratory love. Isn't that good? Celebratory love. Um, and then comes a very, very interesting section. To what should one resort when terrified by fear of rebirth? So this question might not mean very much to you, because you may not be terrified of rebirth especially if you don't believe in rebirth. You won't be terrified of it. But traditionally, Buddhists would be terrified about the idea of getting reborn. It's not good news to get reborn, yeah? Because there's a lot of suffering involved. Um, so his answer is, uh, he should resort to the magnanimity of the Buddha. Now, I don't know what the Sanskrit is for that magnanimity, but magnanimity means largesse, doesn't it? Big-mindedness. Yeah. 
you could maybe you could say big heartedness um, then he asks where should he who, who wishes to resort to the magnanimity of the Buddha take his stand he should stand in equanimity to all living beings and so on and so on and so on on and on and on you come down and down and down what is the root of skillful and unskillful mental states self the idea of a self that's what causes skillful and unskillful mental states what's the root of self view craving is the root of self view what's the root of craving unreal construction constructing ideas in your mind constructing a world in your mind what's the root of unreal construction distorted perception what's the root of distorted perception baselessness so this is remarkable isn't it you you go down 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 just trying to find out what's causing this what's causing that what's causing that you get down to baselessness that's at the root of everything and then Manjushri says what's the root of baselessness which is a silly question Bodhisattva of wisdom shouldn't be asking that question really what's the root of baselessness and Manjushri says no and Vimalakirti says Manjushri how can baselessness have a root yeah so at the root of all this at the bottom of everything is baselessness which is where we began isn't it uh, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings as basically non-existing in in the ultimate sense and that's what everything is everything is ultimately non-existent non-existent in the sense that it doesn't last so we're 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 standing on very shifting sands you could say and it's this insight that bodhisattvas of the eighth bhumi realize now the eighth bhumi is an important one there are ten bhumis the tenth bhumi is uh, enlightenment the eighth bhumi is um, I can't remember the Sanskrit term for it but it's something to do with um, the patient acceptance of realizing that no thing exists yeah now until you get there the, old, the whole idea is quite frightening you know when, when you come close to that insight you begin to get quite frightened because it really is the death of the ego the death of self when you realize that you realize that your identity is meaningless construction so when you get close to that you become quite fearful and breaking into breaking through into the eighth boomy is the patient acceptance that you realize that actually I do not exist as a separate being so that's what all that meant mm. really it's a very profound uh, teaching here in the uh, the first part of the seventh chapter paradoxes are amazing aren't they like all the passions of a Tathagata of a Buddha mm. and, and, and I was puzzled at why he put them there mm. because you almost want to smile mm. I wondered in fact whether he wanted us to do that well I think they are meant to be jokes it begins very very seriously and then he starts resorting to ridiculous things you know to the to the point of the erection of a eunuch 
Now that has to be a joke, surely. <laughs> it would be hard to keep a straight face, wouldn't it? If the teacher's talking to you and they talk about the erection of a eunuch, you think, hey, how does that work? So I think there are, it starts off with some really beautiful images and then it goes into this kind of ridiculous, joking kind of an idea. And I'm sure there's a reason for that. Hmm. So I think there's something to take away, isn't it? I was studying this with my chapter. Chapter is a bunch of order members who meet regularly and we were looking at this and um, we were saying, oh, what would it be like to see each other like this? What would it really be like to, to really see someone as impermanent, not here for very long? That would affect you, wouldn't it, if you really saw that? It would affect the way you talked and behaved towards them. It would have to. Hmm. Anything, any more to say on that bit? Okay, can you take another bit? The style of... Um... <coughs> Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the, the style of combat, questions, answers, questions, answers, is, um, is that familiar to us? Do, 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 have I seen films where Tibetans monks train in, in argument? I'm sure you have seen those films, yeah, but they're not real debates. No, they're very stylized, apparently. Um, you, have you ever seen those films of Tibetan monks training, young monks usually training in debate? And they're very, very physical. You know, they're walking around and they're, when they make a point, they do this. It's almost quite aggressive, ah, like this. And then the other one comes back. And, uh, and when I first saw them, the, the narrator was telling us that they're in debate. And I thought, wow, that's really impressive. But actually what it turns out is the so-called debate is you've got a question and there's an answer that you should know off by heart. And that's all it is really. It's just wrote questions and answers. Um, I actually experienced this with a Tibetan monk once. Very nice guy, actually. And uh, we were just hanging out in Hebden Bridge. And uh, he asked me a question. He said, um, which is the most important of the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma or Sangha? And I thought, wow, that's a really good question. And I thought we were in for a, a debate, you know. So I said, hmm, depends. Depends. He said, no, Buddha. And then he asked me another question. So there's only one answer to that, which was Buddha. Because I, I was going to go on to say, well, in a sense, Sangha, because without Sangha, you've got no Dharma or Buddha left. It was all going to die out. But no, he wasn't interested in, in uh, you know, my explanation. No, Buddha is the right answer. Then he asked me another question. And I thought, oh, this is going to be really boring, isn't it? <laughs> yeah could be that hundreds of years ago they really were debating like that, I don't know, but it's become very stylized. yeah. Because one presumes that Manjushri kind of knew the answers, but was uh, giving a foil to the, the punchline of, of, no, not punchline. He would have to have known the answers because he's the Bodhisattva of wisdom. He would have to have known them. Um, but it's the, the kind of uh, the conceit of this text is that Vimalakirti is beyond everybody. 
in some way, even beyond the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. Um, we had a talk on this section a couple of weeks ago from someone called Maitreya Bandhu and he made a very, very good point actually. He said, um, Vimlakut is a very mysterious character. We don't really know what or who he is. So you could say that wisdom asks mystery how you should view all beings. That's a very nice way of understanding it, isn't it? Wisdom asks mystery how should you view beings? And this is the way you should view them, very mysterious, like dream visions on waking and so on. Hmm. Hmm. Did anybody enjoy that reading? Makes a difference when you know what they're talking about, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 It does settles a little bit. Because mm. mm. the paragraph is very long. It mm. goes on with it. You've forgotten where did he start this, this mm. list of, of beautiful phrases. But what's he talking about? Because you've forgotten that the yeah. Yeah, opening. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's have the second reading then. So for this we need Arimati. Arimati is going to play the goddess. Thereupon, a certain goddess who lived in that house, having heard this teaching of the Dharma, of the great heroic Bodhisattvas, and being delighted, pleased and overjoyed, manifested herself in a material body and showered the great spiritual heroes, the bodhisattvas, and the great disciples with heavenly flowers. When the flowers fell on the bodies of the bodhisattvas, they fell off on the floor. But when they fell on the bodies of the great disciples, they stuck to them and did not fall. The great disciples shook the flowers and even tried to use their magical powers, but still the flowers would not shake off. Then the goddess said to the venerable Shariputra, Reverend Shariputra, why do you shake these flowers? Goddess, these flowers are not fitting for monks, and so we are trying to shake them off. Do not say that, Reverend Shariputra. Why? These flowers are perfectly fitting. Why? These flowers are free of concept and free of discrimination. It is only yourselves, the elders, who conceive them and discriminate regarding them. Reverend Shariputra, among those who have renounced the world to take up spiritual discipline so well expounded, these concepts and discriminations are not fitting. It is those who conceive of neither concepts nor discriminations who are fit. Reverend Shariputra, see how these flowers do not stick to the bodies of these great spiritual heroes, the Bodhisattvas. This is because they have eliminated conceptual thoughts and discriminations. For example, evil spirits have a hold on a man who is beset by fear. Equally, 
forms, sounds, smells, tastes and textures have a hold on those who are fearful of the dangers of rebirth. Thus, these flowers stick to the bodies of those who have not eliminated their instincts for the passions and do not stick to the bodies of those who have eliminated their instincts. Therefore, the flowers do not stick to the bodies of those bodhisattvas who have abandoned all instincts. Goddess, how long have you been in this house? I have been here as long as the elder has been in liberation. Then have you been in this house for quite some time? Has the elder been in liberation for quite some time? At that, the elder Shariputra fell silent. Elder, you are foremost of the wise. Why do you not speak? Now, when it is your turn, you do not answer the question. Since liberation is inexpressible, goddess, I do not know what to say. All the syllables pronounced by the elder have the nature of liberation. Why? Liberation is neither internal nor external, nor can it be apprehended apart from them. Likewise, Syllables are neither internal nor external, nor can they be apprehended anywhere else. Therefore, Reverend Shariputra, do not point to liberation by abandoning speech. Why? The holy liberation is the equality of all things. Goddess, is not liberation the freedom from desire, hatred and folly? Liberation is freedom from desire, hatred and folly. That is the teaching of the excessively proud. But those free of pride are taught that the very nature of desire, hatred and folly is itself liberation. Excellent, excellent goddess. Pray, what have you attained? What have you realized? You have such eloquence. I have attained nothing, Reverend Shariputra. I have no realization. Therefore, I have such eloquence. Whoever thinks I have attained, I have realized, is overly proud in the discipline of the well-taught Dharma. Goddess, do you belong to the disciple vehicle, to the solitary vehicle, or to the great vehicle? I belong to the disciple vehicle when I teach it to those who need it. I belong to the solitary vehicle when I teach the 12 links of dependent origination to those who need them. And since I never abandon the great compassion, I belong to the great vehicle, as all need that teaching to attain ultimate liberation. Nevertheless, Reverend Shariputra, 
just as one cannot smell a castor plant in a magnolia wood, but only the magnolia flowers. So, Reverend Chariputra, living in this house, which is redolent with the perfume of the virtues of the Buddha qualities, one does not smell the perfume of the disciples and the solitary sages. Reverend Shariputra, the Chakras, the Brahmas, the Lokapalas, the Devas, Nagas, Yakshas, Gandharvas, Ashuras, Garudas, Kimnaras and Maharagas who live in this house hear the Dharma from the mouth of this holy man and enticed by the perfume of the virtues of the Buddha qualities proceed to conceive the spirit of enlightenment, the bodhicitta. Oh, Reverend Sariputra, I have been in this house for 12 years and I have heard no discourses concerning the disciples and solitary sages, but have heard only those concerning the great love, the great compassion and the inconceivable qualities of the Buddha. Reverend Chariputra, eight strange and wonderful things manifest themselves constantly in this house. What are these eight? A light of golden hue shines here constantly, so bright it is hard to distinguish day and night. Neither the moon nor the sun shines here distinctly. That is the first wonder of this house. Furthermore, Reverend Chariputra, whoever enters this house is no longer troubled by his passion from the moment he is within. This is the second strange and wonderful thing. Furthermore, Reverend Chariputra, the house is never forsaken by Chakra, Brahma, the Lokapalas, and the Bodhisattvas from all the other Buddha fields. That is the third strange and wonderful thing. Furthermore, Reverend Chariputra, this house is never empty of the sounds of the Dharma, the discourse on the six transcendences, and the discourses of the irreversible wheel of the Dharma. That is the fourth strange and wonderful thing. Furthermore, Reverend Chariputra, in this house one always hears the rhythms, songs and music of the gods and men, and from this music constantly resounds the sound of the infinite Dharma of the Buddha. This is the fifth strange and wonderful thing. Furthermore, Reverend Chariputra, in this house there are always four inexhaustible treasures replete with all kinds of jewels which never decrease although still the poor and wretched may partake to their satisfaction. That is the sixth strange and wonderful thing. Furthermore, Reverend Chariputra, at the wish of this good man, to this house come the innumerable Tathagatas <coughs> of the Ten Directions, such as the Tathagatas Shakyamuni, Amitabha, Akshobhya, 
jeweled virtue, jeweled flame, jeweled moon, jeweled majesty, hard to surpass, lion echo, profiting all, and so forth. <clears throat> and when they come, they teach the door of Dharma, called the secrets of the Tathagatas, and then depart. That is the seventh strange and wonderful thing. Furthermore, Reverend Shariputra, all the splendour of the abodes of the gods and all the splendours of the fields of the Buddhas shine forth in this house. That is the eighth strange and wonderful thing. Reverend Shariputra, these eight strange and wonderful things are seen in this house. Who then, seeing such inconceivable things, would believe the teaching of the disciples? Goddess, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? Although I have sought my female state for these 12 years, I have not yet found it, Reverend Shariputra. If a magician were to incarnate a woman by magic, would you ask her what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? No. No, such a woman would not really exist. So what would there be to transform? Just so, Reverend Shariputra, all things do not really exist. Now, would you think what prevents one whose nature is that of a magical incarnation from transforming herself out of her female state? Thereupon, the goddess employed her magical power to cause the elder Shariputra to appear in her form and to cause herself to appear in his form. <clears throat> then the goddess, transformed into Shariputra, said to Shariputra, transformed into a goddess, Reverend Shariputra, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? I no longer appear in the form of a male. My body has changed into the body of a woman. I do not know what to transform. If the elder could again change out of the female state, then all women could also change out of their female states. All women appear in the form of women in just the same way as the elder appears in the form of a woman. While they are not women in reality, they appear in the form of women. With this in mind, the Buddha said, in all things, there is neither male nor female. Then the goddess released her magical power and each returned to his ordinary form. Reverend Jayaputra, what have you done with your female form? I n neither made it nor did I change it. Just so. All things are neither made nor changed, and that they are not made and not changed, that is the teaching of the Buddha.
Goddess, where will you be? Where will you be born when you transmigrate after death? I will be born where all the magical incarnations of the Tathagatas are born. But the emanated incarnations of the Tathagata do not transmigrate, nor are they born. All things and living beings are just the same. They do not transmigrate, nor are they born. Goddess, how soon will you attain the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood? At such time as you, Elder, become endowed once more with the qualities of an ordinary individual, then will I attain the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. Goddess, it is impossible that I should become endowed once more with the qualities of an ordinary individual. Just so, Reverend Shariputra. It is impossible that I should attain the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. Why? Because perfect enlightenment stands upon the impossible. Because it is impossible, no one attains the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. But the Tathagata has declared that it, the Tathagatas, who are as numerous as the sons of the Ganges, have attained perfect Buddhahood, are attaining perfect Buddhahood, will go on attaining perfect Buddhahood. Reverend Shariputra, the expression, the Buddhas of the past, present and future, is a conventional expression made up of a certain number of syllables. The Buddhas are neither past, nor present, nor future. Their enlightenment transcends three times. But tell me, Elder, have you attained sainthood? It is attained because there is no attainment. Just so. There is perfect enlightenment because there is no attainment of perfect enlightenment. Then the Lichavi Vimalakirti said to the Venerable Shariputra, Reverend Shariputra, this goddess has already served 92 million billion Buddhas. She plays with the super knowledges. She has truly succeeded in all her vows. She has gained the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. She has actually attained irreversibility. She can live wherever she wishes on the strength of her vow to develop living beings. Here's a question. Um, who do you think the goddess is? Well, she's the goddess, obviously. She's no one else but the goddess. But what does she symbolise, you think? Why is she there? One of the interesting things about the goddess is this is the uh, only appearance in the whole text. She comes and she goes. Just a short period. Um, and I think she's the only female character. Yeah, she's the only female character. So there's obviously something about male and female in there, isn't there? Something very important. But before we get on to that, um, 
Vimalakirti is pretty hard on Shariputra, isn't he? But the goddess is harder on him. She really gives him a hard time, more so than Vimalakirti does. So I've always found this very interesting that the goddess um, lives in Vimalakirti's house. So talking sort of in modern psychological terms, um, what is his house? In a way his house is him, his spiritual life. So you could say that the goddess is part of him. So what does she represent if you think of it in those terms? Yeah. Let's say it before, but I didn't. Okay. Is it his ego? Pardon? Is it ego? What? Uh, the goddess? Yeah. His ego? Yeah. In, 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 what do you mean by ego? Um, it's sort of trying to sort of break him, break him down. Shall we put her? Yeah. Yeah, the goddess is definitely yeah. breaking him down, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Shariputra represents ego, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But the goddess, what does she represent? What's the anima animus? Is that what you're getting at? The sort of Jungian terminology? Well, I don't know the answer. Oh. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not trying to find, you know, I'm not, I'm not fishing for an answer. I'm just wondering what you think of her. Well, like, like the Buddha has the, the earth goddess witnessing. Uh-huh. Ah. To, well, in a similar way, she witnesses the whole of cre you know, creation. Uh huh. Um, yeah, yeah. Life, uh -huh. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. The earth goddess kind of growing. How many Buddhas did she serve? Ninety. Ninety-two million billion. That's a really long time, isn't it? So she's probably been around longer than Vimalakirti has. So maybe she does represent that earth goddess type figure. Yeah. There's an ambiguity in the word serve. I mean, that doesn't immediately come to mind that she's waiting on serving. The word serve, something, something in the farming industry that cattle do, don't they? You know, they get served by the bull. No, it, it doesn't. No, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it really does mean serve in the sense of looking after. This is uh, this is what bodhisattvas. That's what they're supposed to do. Uh, they're supposed to serve Buddhas. You know, make sure they've got their needs met so that they can get on with teaching the Dharma. Yeah. Seems to be taking the teaching of Vimalakirti even further. Mm. You know, with the, with the paradoxes and yeah, um, yeah, with the anatman. I mean, the fact that the, the non -ess essence of, of mm. uh, all, all beings, mm. and unless you really <coughs> take that on board, you can't get a glimpse of what the teaching um, mm. means. Mm. Um, yeah. And she really, it's almost like Vim, uh, the goddess represents Vimalakirti not holding back. It's almost as he's been holding back up until now and suddenly pff, she really gives him a hard time. And um, what she's given him a hard time about is similar to the kind of things that Vimalakirti has previously given him a hard time about, which is his small-mindedness about the spiritual life, his rather fixed views. Um, so in, a, in chapter six, the whole thing was chairs, wasn't it? 
where, where's everyone going to sit? And he really took him to task for that. Have you come here for the sake of the Dharma or have you come here for the sake of a chair? Um, but here, um, his preoccupations that are exposed are the fact that he's a monk, he's ordained, and the goddess isn't. Yeah. So she plays with him about this because um, he's also supposed to be a monk who's attained enlightenment. And she plays with the whole idea of attainment, doesn't she? The fact that he thinks that he's attained something. She really takes that apart, doesn't she? There's, there's no thing to be attained. So as long as you think you've attained something, that's a sign of pride. So there's that. Um, but then there's the whole thing about man and woman. Now, to understand really what's going on here, you have to understand Indian society in those days would have been very hierarchical. So you've got the four kinds of Buddhist. You've got monks, nuns, lay men and lay women. And there's a hierarchy there with monks at the top and nuns second. And the nuns are supposed to look up to the monks and bow to them when they meet them. And the monks don't do the same towards the nuns. So there's definitely a hierarchy there. And um, so that's the world that Shariputra inhabits and he takes it all very seriously and literally. So um, it's very important for him to be a man and a monk. So that th these are the two things that the, uh, the goddess is really challenging him about, being a monk and having an idea of attaining, attainment, and as well as that, being a man. So he asks her what we, we might consider quite an imp impudent question, impertinent question. Um, what is the question? Let's see if I can... How long have you been in this house? That is, an imper that is not such an impertinent question. Um, I'm thinking more about her being a woman. Yeah. In your female state, can, can, can you uh, achieve Buddhahood? Ah, um, that's it. What prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? That's right. So that's rather an impudent question, isn't it? As if she'd want to do that. Now, why is he asking that question? Because he believes that only males can become Buddhas. Yeah, this is actually the Buddhist tradition. Males and females can become enlightened, but only males become Buddhas. Do you know the difference? Do, do you see the difference between the, the two things? A, a Buddha is someone who gained enlightenment. There's no one else around to teach him and he gains enlightenment. And then now it's a Buddha land and he can teach others and others can gain enlightenment. But only a male can do that, that function. So he asks her, um, what's it again? What prevents... Uh, goddess, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? Yeah, and her answer is, although I've sought my female straight state for these 12 years, I have not yet found it. So then there's a whole discussion, isn't there? Question and answer discussion about what that means, the female state and the male state. And basically, well, I, I suppose you got it, did you? What her point was? There is no such thing 
because there is no such anything. Uh, female and male are identities which we hold fast to, but actually they don't really mean anything. So, um, thank you. Concept. It's a modern concept and, um, you know, we, we, of course we all think, yeah, of course, the goddess is quite right. But in those days when this text was written, for four or five hundred years after the Buddha, this would have been extraordinary. This would have been really quite revolutionary. And there would have been a lot of disagreement about it. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Any more to say about that section? It's a rather uh, odd sentence towards the end. He, he says, um, you can be enlightened if you've overcome um, greed, hatred and, and ignorance. Mm. And she, she turns it on its head, she said, you become Buddha if you've embraced, or something like that. Mm. That reminded me very much of Imla Kirti, the way he yeah. makes things into a paradox. It's um, one of the main teachings of the Vimana Kirti Nadesha is that you, uh, you gain enlightenment by embracing the world. Um, you only gain enlightenment by really embracing your own greed, hatred and delusion, not by trying to get away from them. It's one of the main messages of the Vimana Kirti Nadesha. Bit of a tantric message. Some people think that it's an early tantric text, but it probably wasn't. Mm. Uh, well, there were, I think there might be two levels on which you could see this. One level is that um, uh, you could say it's an early teaching on spiritual bypassing. You come across the idea of spiritual bypassing? Okay, so there, there's a, there, um, modern commentators of Buddhism from the world of psychology, and this, this came from a psych psychotherapist called John Wellwood. Uh, notice that um, Buddhists who came to see him for therapy tended to indulge in what he, he later called spiritual bypassing. So to spiritual bypass something is not to really uh, look at yourself as you are, but try to kind of leapfrog to enlightenment. Yeah. So uh, you might get someone who's decided to become a monk or a nun. They've taken up the vow of celibacy. Now that on the face of it, that looks like a really good thing, doesn't it? Oh, well done, you know. But is it always a good thing? It depends on the motivation, doesn't it? And um, some people might be motivated to become a monk or a nun, not because they're really inspired by renunciation, but because they're frightened of intimacy. That's a possibility, isn't it? So you, 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 you become a monk or a nun, so you don't have sexual relations, and that gets you out of the need to face your demons when it comes to intimate relationships. So you try to bypass that particular problem of yours and go straight to enlightenment. That's the basis of spiritual bypassing. So you could say, looking at it from that point of view, that, that what the goddess is saying is you're not going to gain enlightenment by trying to bypass, by trying to go round greed, hatred and delusion. You've got to face them in yourself to gain enlightenment. Could mean that. 
I think it also that's one level I think but there's another level I think it means which is um, uh, rather difficult to understand but it's to do with non-duality um, the idea of greed hatred and illusion is there and enlightenment is there as a duality and of course um, one of the titles of the text is uh, the reconciliation of all dualities so he, the, 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 the goddess here is reconciling that particular duality. Hmm. I think that's probably enough for one evening, isn't it?